How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media. And we'll spend the next hour, Tom's trying to play with my microphone over here, and it's a little funny in and out. But we'll spend the next hour talking to our learning stuff and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to call in, maybe first segment, last segment, 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can email us at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer your questions in a timely fashion. Um, it's a little rainy outside if you've been outside, a little chilly, at least in the Detroit area. But inside here, it is toasty warm, very toasty warm. Someone should turn up our air conditioning. Um, and also, uh, we have, uh, we're getting crowded around here. Um, we have Ethan training in the back. Ethan, how are you? Don't answer. Just wave. See, they can't see you anyways. It's okay. But in any case... Um, so lots of things happening today. We got to unfortunately talk about what happened in Pittsburgh um, early last week or later, a week ago already. So that's, we got to talk about that, unfortunately. Um, I have a special guest coming in. His name is uh, Moshe Dimchitz from Montreal, a researcher, cataloger, dealer of Judaica, Hebraica, books and manuscripts, a very, very interesting person. Lots of knowledge on stuff that... Now with computers and anytime you want information, you go to Mr. Google. So someone who likes to hold and touch and sell old books and manuscripts, a very interesting conversation. And of course, we have to talk about the Torah portion, the death of Sarah is this week. Um, Isaac's going to get married this week. We have to find a wife. We, um, Abraham has to find a wife for his son Isaac. That'll be Rebecca. All these things we'll try to get to, of course. Jonas and Goldson will uh, will join us in our last segment, and uh, but let's 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 get to it. We got to really talk. We got to talk a little uh, Pittsburgh, the massacre. Um, people have talked about it all week. Um, there we go. And I heard this great song somebody sent out on LinkedIn that I thought sort of hit the message a little bit. You know this song. You don't know this song, but I just uh, I appreciated it to give a feeling for what's going on. So we know what happened. Crazy fellow, maybe crazy is the wrong word. Maybe evil is really the word we want to use. That there was an evil person, I don't remember his name, I don't care about his name, living in Pittsburgh, and he decided to go into a synagogue during services. There was a circumcision going on at the time, and, uh, and he murdered... Um, at least I believe the latest number was 11. Could be I'm off on the numbers. But he murdered 11 people, a very evil person. So, of course, there's all the comments on Facebook and LinkedIn and social media and the news. So, you know me and politics, we don't mix so good. So, all the politics stuff, I even told my mother last night, I said I'm not interested in the politics. My feelings of what each political party feels, I, that's not me. That's not what should be taken, could be taken from the whole story. Interesting, my mother, I was talking to last night, um, it seems her 
grandparents may have prayed in that, or at least an affiliate of that synagogue. It seems that synagogue merged with a few other synagogues over the years, and it's certainly a newer building. But uh, my mother did live in that area. She did not pray in that synagogue. So the question is, with all the things happening, my mother told me she was in Nyack, and there were like a thousand people in a JCC getting together, and I was trying to wrap my head around it. Do I think it's a good idea, everybody writing, what they're writing, their comments? Do I care? Do I not care? And I, and I had to think about it, which is what we always say, think about it anyways. you got to think about it. And even here in Detroit, they, they have um, this weekend, um, they're encouraging everyone to go to Sabbath services, all kinds of synagogues will, will open their doors. They always open their doors, but they're encouraging people to come. And again, I'm trying to figure out, is this good or is this not good? So interesting, I decided, not that you need my permission, but I decided it is good. So, but what's good about it? And I was, what does it help all these comments and people are upset at this evil person and talking about this evil and all the synagogues opening their doors and JCCs bringing people of, of all backgrounds and races and creeds. Why is this important? So first of all, I don't know if you remember, I hope you remember, but I'm going to say when was it? Probably August time. In August time, we had two women here from the Holocaust Center. And I'm discussing with them over and over, talking about the tragedies and, and the horror of the Holocaust. And they were sitting here telling me that the purpose of the Holocaust, yes, of course, is to remember. But the Holocaust Center is really trying to teach people to recognize evil. And when they see evil, stand up to it. In other words, if you just let evil take its course, then it keeps going unchecked. But if there's enough people, like the bully, we talk about in schools all the time, we talk about bullies, and that people have to recognize who is a bully, stand up to the bully. If your friend is being bullied, that you go ahead and stand up for your friend, and that will get the bully to uh, stop his bullying. I guess that's words. But in other words, if everybody lets the bully walk around and do whatever he wants, then he does. If you don't let the bully walk around and, and harass and bother, and chepper is a good Yiddish word, then he won't do it. Does it mean he'll never do it? Of course it doesn't mean he'll never do it. As we could stand on our head with all kinds of plans and programs, we are not eradicating evil. That is not happening. And eradicating is a big word. That is a good word to use. We are not getting rid of evil. But if we recognize evil... And we do not allow ourselves to, to let it go unchecked, then that in itself will at least tame, tame what's happening. Hopefully, things like this won't, won't occur. Again, I was thinking, like, America's not used to this. Unfortunately, countries like France, even England, this is, I don't want to say daily occurrence, but, but this is all the time. This is, it's, I mean, things there are just terrible. We're just not used to it. In Israel, also, we have tons of problems. In America, we're not used to it, so we make a big deal when it finally happens. So that was my first thought. First thought is, we like, like our friends from the Holocaust Center told us when we had them on the show, that we got to recognize evil so we ourselves don't get taken by it. We have to recognize it. We have to, to stand up to it. We do not accept it. What would have happened if the world would have recognized how evil Hitler was and they would have taken a stand in the early 30s? Perhaps the world, not perhaps, the world would definitely be a different kind of place. That was my first take. My next take is 
along the same lines, but with an addition. And that is, um, again, my father was in, the, was in the Air Force. My father was in the Army. I'm not anti-Army. I'm not anti-war. But I am pro-peace, if you can have both. You know, the end of prayers, the last blessing in the, what's called the Amida or the Shemona Esrei, or when we stand quietly and pray, the last blessing is a blessing that asks for peace. Because God says, I want to fill you with blessing. But if you want to get filled with something, you need a vessel, you need a cup, you need, a, you, you need something to hold all the blessing. So God says, there is no greater vessel for holding, for holding blessing than peace. Peace is the vessel that holds everything. Even in other Torah portions, we talk about different blessings, and in those blessings is peace. Because you can have all the money in the world, but if, you're, if there's fighting in your house, fighting in your life, what do you need the money for? If there's war going on, again, you could have the greatest inventions, but what do you need it for? So at the end of the day, peace is where it's at. And when all types of denominations and all kinds of fellow Jews get together, and not only Jews, by the way, again, my mother said in Nyack, there were all kinds of people that were by this gathering. I can't remember if she told me it was um, Tuesday night, maybe, maybe Monday night. I'm not sure which night it was. This is in Nyack. Okay, Nyack is, by the way, for those who know, Nyack is a suburb of New York City. It's in New York. So my, my mother lives in, in Muncie, New York. It's Rochester County, if you're looking on a map. So it was in that area, again, she said about 1,000 people. When people get together to create peace, it is amazingly powerful. So therefore, this idea that all the synagogues, at least again, this is a Detroit um, idea. I have no idea what's happening around the country. Um, but in Detroit, they're trying to get as many synagogues. They have a long list. You go to the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit, go to the website. There's a JCC also has it on their website. All the different shuls, synagogues, temples involved in this week's um, again, I'm not sure what they're calling it, but we're just, they want everyone to come and show support and pray in the synagogues this uh, weekend. So that idea of peace, of togetherness, even though we're not all the same, and there's differences, let there be differences. But if we can overlook our differences, I'm not saying you have to be like me. I would like you to be like me, but you don't have to be like me. But as long as we can all get together and we could all be friends and we could all be at peace and we can, we can live with each other's differences, then the, <clears throat> then the world, <clears throat> sorry about that, then the world will be a better place. And maybe my throat will be a little, little better with all the, there must be something in the air. It is the season where my throat decides to not react um, kindly to the change of weather. But I'm sure we'll all be fine as soon as the weather gets into the, into the, uh, freezing 20s and 10s and there goes that song again and again i believe the the person that song is from either aaron elijah or elijah aaron and i don't remember but if you've ever heard it before you look it up online it's a great song okay but now in our little bit of time left before our break um we got to talk about the torah portion and unfortunately parts of it are fortunately um connect quite well so this week's torah portion starts out with the death of Sarah. Abraham's wife, Sarah, passes away. Interesting, the name of the Torah portion is not the death of Sarah. The name of the Torah portion is the life of Sarah. 
And I was, how long, the Torah discusses how long did Sarah live? And again, it gives the numbers in a very funny way. She lived 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, and there's all kinds of uh, commentaries why the Torah has to write it in such a strange way. Just say she lived 127. As an aside, I just saw this morning, Sarah is the only lady in the Bible, at least to my knowledge, the only lady in the Bible that it does not, she's the only lady that says how long she lived. Doesn't say in the Torah how long Rebecca lived. Doesn't say how long Rachel or Leah or any women, great Deborah, or Deborah, any of these ladies, it does not say how long they lived. Men, it does. We'll have Abraham and, and we know about Isaac and we'll know Jacob and we'll know Joseph and we'll know Moses, we'll know Aaron. Lots of, of, of players in the Torah that we get their, their lifespan, but not women, except for Sarah. Because she lived an exceptional life. She lived, she was a very righteous woman. She lived, she lived. And, I, and one of, the, one of the, the points that the Torah is trying to bring out is she didn't just, you know, a lot of us live, but do we live our whole life? She lived every second, every hour, every moment. She lived her life. She lived her life righteously, but she lived her entire life. So the idea of saying how long she lived is not just a number, but the point is she lived her life the way a life is supposed to be lived, if that's a real word. That's, that's why the Torah, one of the reasons why the Torah breaks it up that way. But uh, I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting place that we mention all of a sudden she dies. I mean, it could be she just happened to die now. But we left off in last week's Torah portion, which we did not have time to talk about, and that was the binding of Isaac, that Abraham brings Isaac up on the altar and he's ready to slaughter him, and God says, don't kill him, you did what you were supposed to do, you brought him up, and you were, you were willing to sacrifice him, you did not sacrifice him, and that's where last week's Torah portion ends, and we start this week's Torah portion with Sarah passing away. So the commentaries say, and there's really some other issues here, um, Sarah was not living in the Hebron area. She's buried in Hebron in the, in the cave of Machpelah, in the Mars Machpelah, in that, in, that's in the Hebron area. If you've uh, ever been to Israel, you've managed to, uh, to go uh, check it out. She was not living there. She was living in the area of the Philistines, which is really in Gaza. But somehow she got wind that something was happening with Abraham and Isaac. So she goes to Hebron, the giants are there, and she asks if they know what's going on with Abraham and Isaac, and they inform her that Abraham is either about to sacrifice Isaac or Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, and when she hears the news, she dies. Again, debatable, was she supposed to die then, And but this is the last message she got. Did this message cause her to die again? Both are debatable. But this, so this is why she dies here. So first of all, it seems in Jewish law we prefer, unlike men, that we don't care when they die if they have to be transported. We actually don't like to transport women when they die. We want them buried immediately. It's considered much more honorable. We're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks when, when Rachel dies and she's buried on the side of the road. Um, but God wanted that Abraham and Sarah are both going to be buried in this cave of Machpelah. This is where we want her buried. We're not going to transport her. Abraham's not going to transport her all the way from that Philistine area. 
So she has to get here first. So she comes here, which is exactly what happened. She finds out Isaac is almost um, sacrificed, or whether she, right before, right after, and she dies. And I want to leave us, though, with an important, important lesson. So much to talk about in this concept of how she died and why she died. But um, I I have this all the time. People, you, you may know them, they give charity, they're very charitable people, and we're talking about big money. And then things happen in life, and all of a sudden the bank accounts are quite low. They're not in a position to give that kind of money. And people will come to them, friends will come to them and say, oh, don't you feel bad? If you wouldn't have given all that money to charity, um, you'd have that money in your bank account. What a terrible mistake. And at least my friends always know to say, nope, I don't have any regrets. No regrets. Because the evil inclination or the satan, whatever we're going to call him, he, he, he doesn't like when we do mitzvot, when we do commands, when we do what God wants. So when we have this beautiful, sparkly, shiny command that we've done properly, he has one more chance to ruin it, to tarnish it. And if he can get us to have regrets that we did a mitzvah, that we did a command of God, that will tarnish the mitzvah. So here we have Abraham did the, his greatest feat. He was willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And that is as beautiful a mitzvah. We benefit from it even today. And, and the, the satta and the evil inclination has one more chance. Can he get Abraham to have regrets because his wife dies? And that's exactly why we have here in this Torah portion, Sarah dies, Abraham does not have regrets, and we still benefit from that great, great action of Abraham. So, but my music is playing. Hold through the break. We have Moshe Dimchitz coming on. We're going to talk about all kinds of manuscripts and old books. Hold through the break, and we're going to be right back. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our Nine and Dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Advertising your business these days can be challenging. Traditional radio and TV ads are expensive and, frankly, a bit of a crapshoot. Not to mention, the audience for over-the-air material is shrinking as more and more of us demand to see and hear what we want, when we want. Advertising on new radio media is a solution. With our live streaming programs that are also available on demand, your message is always ready when your customers are ready to watch and listen, all for a fraction of what you'd likely have been paying for other ads. NewRadioMedia.com. Call Buzz Van Houten at 248-939-9999 for more information. Hey, you guys, it's Raphael of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Guess what? The only thing we can get down here in the sewer is Geekstainment Weekly on new radio media. Turtle power! Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years, and through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service, and we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. 
please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. And we're back. And as much as I'd love to keep talking about the Torah portion, but as I told you, we have a special guest. Moshe Dimchitz, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Researcher, cataloger, dealer of Judaica, Judaica, Hebraica books and manuscripts. Moshe, how are you today? Great. Thank you, Rebzi. Oh, it's so good to talk to you, and it's so good when someone talks on a landline and I can hear them loud and clear. It's unbelievable. So, well, the stuff you deal with would not do well in today's weather. At least here it's rainy. But, um, so we talked, we talked on the phone. You deal with, with, with books and manuscripts. Before we get into everything, could you just take a minute or two, just tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you do, and then we'll get rolling. Definitely, be my honor. So, um, it all starts that I was born into a rare book dealing house. My father's been a dealer for 25 years plus, and my mother was a professor in Jewish studies and English literature. So that gives you a bit of a background to rare books and manuscripts. Um, not that long ago, you're going back three or four years, I slowly, slowly started dealing, selling once in a month, once in two months. Then, by a matter of coincidence, I mentioned to my father that he would like, for insurance purposes, to put together a list of what he's got to be able to bring us an appraiser, uh, legal appraiser, to be able to get an insurance policy on that. You talk about his library. Right. He had a magnificent library of various uh, Jewish books, some manuscripts, and um, saying that he wanted a, he wanted a cataloger to be able to, for insurance purposes to to be able to get an appraisal and go from there. Now that that work was meant to be for a week. Now it took uh, three months, and I realized that that's an industry for itself. That became my profession then, and being that. Being involved in books and cataloging it, I, I took my dealing a little bit further and I became more involved in dealing. So that's what we're today in general. Okay, so let's let's uh, take it from the beginning. So there's really two parts. There's there's cataloging people's libraries, and then there's actually finding, researching, selling, I guess from auctions, um, old books. Exactly. So so let's and like you know nowadays if I need information. You know, I don't need to go to the library anymore. Nowadays, I go to Mr. Google. I find out everything I want. When, when, and so why do people even want these old libraries? What are they going to do with them? That's a great question, and it's, uh, and it's something that in our times we've seen a significant change. So as you mentioned, uh, let's go back 30 years. No Internet. Phones international is difficult. A person would like to have uh, a thousand books regarding the Rambam, Maimonides. So the easiest way, I wouldn't say the most uh, economical way, but the easiest way would be he collects his own library of thousand books regarding the Rambam, Maimonides. As of today, it would be even easier for him to have a database, with, or he buys a database and he keeps it on the computer, or he 
he just logs in online to certain libraries and he has everything and plus because there's certain items all the money in the world you can get and he has all the access that no one had 30 years ago so there's no real point to say that today someone is collecting because of the research only now that's the general uh, idea i wouldn't say it's detailed it's always that way the reason why people collect today would be the answer because they enjoy collecting the same reason people collect stamps coins etc anything you have out there collecting there is something by having the exact book in your hands the paper was printed at that time i can't say it is the same as you have online it's not the same but definitely for research reasons it's almost the same now sometimes it happens that i do come across a book that's unrecorded in anywhere, not in any library, not any database. There's the only copy. So that does happen, but that's very, very rare. All right, so I'm going to, let's, I'm just going to, let's cut up, let's back up a little bit. So there are people, and I would say there's stamp collectors, my son collects coins. When he collects the coins, he learns about their history, he learns about how they made the coins. So people that are collecting, so yes, they have a bug that they like to collect. So it, it, does it work the same way like in stamps? I want stamps of presidents. I want stamps of countries. Do people collect Hebrew books the same way? Or is there, is there different types of focus? Or it's, it's very broad? What happens? Um, very good question. Definitely the right way to do it is with a specific subject because there's no possibility in the world that one individual, definitely not a private person, even a library, I would say, that should be able to collect everything in the broad concept of everything to do with uh, Judaism. Um, basically impossible, because it's, it's, it's large, larger, than, larger than, than one institution or one person. There are people that are collectors, they just like to collect something that's antique, rare, and they do buy here and there without one specific subject. I would say these people usually don't end up being the biggest collectors and enjoying their collection because they don't really know what they have and there's no real line they're following. Now, the biggest pleasure for a collector and for me personally is when I know someone has even a small collection. Of, let's say, an example, someone collects of a certain printing city that were printed in total 25 books. So I start off with him and I tell him that 10 books is easy to get, another 10 books is a bit hard, then there's five books that's almost impossible. Now, when, he, when he's holding at number 23, number 24, and he's getting up to number 25, there's no bigger, bigger pleasure for collector. I reached my collection to the fullest. I have 25 books in that printing city. So I gotta, yeah, I'm going to back you up a little bit just to make sure everything's clear for everybody. So what happens is that there were, I mean, people probably don't even know nowadays how printing works, but throughout, we'll say Europe for argument's sake, there were cities that were famous for printing presses every city had a printing press how what happened as you're talking about the, there's 25 books from this printing press or from this city how exactly is that working oh that's a great question that's something that really changed today okay so let's be very clear a printing press was a building or a house or a place now you couldn't print only in the printing press there was no printer in anyone's office or anyone's home so every book that was printed Every book was printed in the printing press, so every printing press has its uniqueness. Let alone the city that it was, it used different typography, it used different paper, it used different printers with different values, more 
everything was different. Every printing press has its uniqueness. When today, when you, you buy a book that says it's printed in New York, it's not as well probably not printed in New York. It's just a publishing house. It's uh, official location is in New York. It's probably printed somewhere in China or somewhere, something like that. When going back, not when going back, uh, every printing press had was printed in that room. It couldn't be printed somewhere else. So when stated it's printing by this and this printer, it means a lot. When in today's day of age, being printed in a certain area in a certain printing press doesn't mean much because that same printing press could just send the PDF to any printing shop in the world and do every day a different type of paper, different type of typography, different type of content. Now, for an example, if let's say there was a rabbinical figure in Warsaw and he printed his work in Turkey, in Constantinople, Istanbul, as of today, that would raise a big question, why? Now, today, when you have a safer or book printed from an author in New York in let's say, I don't know, in, in Beijing, China, there's no question. It was, he sent it a PDF a night later, it was there, and it was printed for various reasons. So a printing press in olden days meant significant a lot to the book and to the, ty- and to the author and to the, and to the way it was laid out in print. So it's almost like detective work where somebody will hold in their hand a book that clearly is printed, like your example, in Turkey, but you know that the author lived a thousand miles north and traveling and everything is not going to save you on money. So then it becomes a, a whole story in and of itself of why did the person do this? Right, exactly. And even more, there's so many, uh, we, could, we could go on and talk for hours and days of so many anecdotes and, and, and details that every, not gonna say every, many books have. For an example, even a, 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 a very broad topic that I'll just touch for a minute. At a certain period of time in Russian, in Tsarist Russian, there was, it wasn't allowed to print Hasidic or Kabbalistic mystical books. And uh, so one of the tricks they did is, so let's say they printed a, a, a Hasidic book in an, a Russian city that was put on the title page, or a Austrian-Hungary city that wasn't under the law that didn't allow printing these type of books, or they would do something even more interesting. They used to push back the date before... The, the, the law came in. So let's give an example. The law came in, in in 1820. They would put a date of 1810. Now, there was no law forbidding having a book that has Hasidic content or, or mystical content. It, it, it was forbidding of printing a new book. They would do a forgery on the title page. And that's very common because you could see... I'll just give you an example how you could see it very simply. There's a book printed, let's say, in 1700. That's what it says on the title page, when the author was not born in 1700. So let's say the author was born in 1700. But the the it, it, his son is writing an introduction to the book when his son wasn't born. So you could that's something you could see common. So it is, would you be able to tell if I pretended to use a title page from from uh, Turkey? Would you be able to tell that if I'm living in Warsaw, there's no you could tell from the print of the book that it was not written in that uh, in that city. You mean it wasn't printed? It wasn't printed. I'm sorry, in that city, right? R- definitely, uh, it becomes harder. When things are close, meaning uh, two Polish cities or two Ukrainian cities, but if you bring me a book that it says on it Istanbul, and I could see on the paper right away this was not printed in Istanbul. That is amazing. Moshe, if you could hold through the break, because it says there's so many things to talk about, but I'm up against it. So we're going to be back right after the break. So hold on. I'm speaking to Moshe Dimchitz. We're learning all about books and manuscripts, and hold on. We're going to be right back. 
Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years. And through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service. And we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sleeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on newradiomedia.com Fridays, Podquesters. See you there. And we're back, and we're still joined. Moshe, you still there? Moshe, you still there? Did I lose my guest? Try again. Moshe, are you still there? Why am I not hearing him? Hello? You hear him. We lost him? Oh, Moshe, are you there? Yeah, thanks. Oh, okay. Sorry, we lost you there, but Barsem, we have you back. Yeah. So... Let's, uh, I see that last topic. We could be here forever. And maybe I should call exactly. you and, and ask. It's, it's so interesting that there's just the detective work and, the, and I imagine the excitement when, when you can discover and say, this book was not printed in the city they say it's printed or not in the time it's printed. That's fascinating. Right. I will, I will correct you on that. It's fortunately or unfortunately. Uh, I would say rather fortunately, definitely. Um, we are the people of the book, so there's a lot of research done about books. Uh, not too much work left for me in the sense of really investigating and doing new research. I could put together research, I could see some new ideas, but not something really new and big as that. But that's, uh, we, have, we had a lot of scholars and a lot of bibliographers that have done a lot of work for us. So do you feel, is there an excitement when somebody puts one of those books in your hand? Definitely. The learning period, every book that I take in my hand, that I said before, was printed in the printing press. It wasn't printed as we print today through a PDF type of way of printing. It's it's a real object. Someone works on it hand by hand. Every word was expensive. And everything everything is alive. There's a meaning to every page of that book. So... Did they use, and I, was, I know the kind of paper that we use for printing, our paper is, uh, 
is cheap. The the paper they used from a couple hundred years ago, those books need to be stored in special vaults, or can you actually use them? It's a very interesting question, and it's amazing that the, when printing press started, for a good couple of hundred years, the paper is much better than today, and it keeps much better. It, I would say in the late 18th century through 19th century, they started using in various printing cities, not on all, a type of cheaper paper that is more fragile than today's paper. But in general, books were printed on much more expensive paper. It might be because they had no um, mechanical way, they had no way of processing the paper to be as thin as our papers are today. They have a certain thickness that gives it a much longer life. So a person who collects, so a person who collects, would he, you know, is it just like my stamp collection that I pull it out? I don't have a stamp collection. But, would it, you know, you just take it out once in a blue moon to look at it, or they really pull it out of the shelf and they study, or that'll take away its value. How does it work? No, no. If a, if a person uses respectfully things, and I can spill coffee on it, and there's no issue. He can use it as many times as he wants. Same way you'll be using a book at home that's on good paper, you know, like one of these uh, coffee table books that are on special good paper. Why not use it as, mu- as, as much as you want? Then, yeah, just don't leave it there where uh, water or different type of dirt could just reach it. But in general, why not? Aha. Uh-huh. So people who collect, so obviously these things are, 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 not, uh, are not cheap. But when we talk about those... Uh, the word cheap and expensive is very... Uh, variance. First of all, it's, it's relative. But I'm saying it's, uh, many items sold for $50 very easily. But they could sell for, I mean, have you ever been involved in a sale of a book in a $100,000 range? That's just a number I picked out of my I've hat. been very close to that range, yes. So, uh, so the, uh, these collectors are well-known. People know them. You know them. They know you. You have to find them. There's, it's, it's not like we find advertising. Question. No, it's a very good question. There is no general uh, answer to that. There is people, there is collectors, everyone, everyone knows about them. There is collectors that I only know about. There is collectors that some know about. There is collectors that only buy by a certain dealer. It is, there is no real general answer to that. Now, usually collectors spending lots of money, let's say in the millions, we'll talk about now. It's self-understood that many people are going to know about him. So there's two things. First, he might buy by everyone, but that's rare because no one buys by everyone because he has to feel comfortable with some. And there are others that are looking for a good price, so they will be looking around everywhere. It's it's, it's a very general uh, type of situation. So where do you find... And if, you, if you're looking for a book, a collector comes for you and he wants a book from, I don't know, Leningrad, for argument's sake... How do you? My father was born in that city. Oh, see, look at that. How would you go about? How, how do you research to look for these books? Okay, so that's a very good question. Now, when someone comes to me and he wants one specific book, uh, it, can my, it can make my job very difficult because I have to go find one book. Now, there are certain books that are more common for various reasons, so my job would be easier. But if he's specifically calling me for one rare book, my job is very difficult, and I wouldn't put much effort because it's impossible. So I have my couple of sources. I have my own, whatever, call it, warehouse that I have some stuff, so definitely I'll check there first. I'll call one of my uh, 
colleagues that I work with here and there. Maybe I have this book, but it's a, it's a matter of 50 minutes work for one rare book. But I, rem I usually remember these stuff that comes across, and I would offer them once it comes across. Now, what usually happens is someone calls me, he's collecting a certain topic, a certain author, a certain printing press. That makes my life much easier because giving me 50, 100 books, 20 books, just the mathematics is going to be uh, that I could find one, two, three right away, let's say, and give me a period of a month, two, three, more things are going to come across. That's in general. But again, sometimes it happens that someone calls me for something and I have a link on my table. That could happen as well. <laughs> Amazing. So if, a, if, an, if an average person wanted to get his hands on one of these types of books, whether he wants to feel, whether he wants to get into collecting, he wants to see if this is something that excites him, how would a regular person, or maybe a regular person can't, um, how would a person go about collecting? That's a very good question. Now, my personal opinion, because I'm not as much as a dealer, I'm a mix of a dealer and a researcher, so I have a very strong feeling to the line Again, it's my profession. I, I earn my living from this, but I have a feeling to it. I would say any person, I wouldn't even consider now how much his financial worth is. I would say first, he should know what he wants. Now, in the case he knows what he wants, it is very possible, almost in every case, that he should be able to collect in a much lo lower financial, meaning spending less money and, 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 and still collecting that topic. And if, 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 if financial status is, even, is larger, you could collect even more. Let me, let me just think about an example. Um, Hasidic, right? So that's what I consider myself I'm a Hasid, but that's a very common thing that people collect today. Oh, you know, I'm going to use a, sorry, I'm going to use a different uh, example because it's more broad. Gemara, Talmud, yeah, every, 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 every Orthodox boy grows up and studies the Talmud. Now, someone calls me, he learns Afayomi every day, and he's He's a, he's, a, he's a Talmudical scholar. He would like to connect to his past. So I, I ask him, what's your budget, right? So if he'll answer me, I don't know, let's say $1,000 a year. So I'll tell him very simple, $1,000 a year, one of the two. Or let's say you'll give me one volume that you're learning. I'll get you that one volume that you're learning, and I'll provide you something in the worth of $1,000. Like an example, on Amsterdam, uh, Gemara from 8th and 17th century. That will make you happy. Or I'll get you two, three volumes of the ninth, two, three from the same volume of ninth century print. Each volume will cost you, let's say, $300. Now, the same person, if he tells me he wants to spend $10,000, I could just move up a century and tell him, I'll sell you a, 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 a Basel Talmud or a Venice Talmud. Meaning, if a person wants to collect and he, and he has any idea of what he wants to collect, it is almost possible in every case to provide him in every financial range something that could be part of his collection. And if, he, if, if financial income grows and he would like to expand, he could definitely move on to more expensive things in that same topic. And the same way, other way, if he, let's say he wants to slow down on the, on, on, on the spending, he could move down in the same area in a different price range. That's a very, uh, I would say that that's the most important. You should know what you want and get a feel of what you collect. It's always a good idea to know what you want, yes. Otherwise, you get hit on the head and you don't know it was what you were looking for. So I'm going to leave you, Moshe, you're going to leave me with two things. First of all, if somebody is interested in collecting and would like to contact you, what would be the best way to go about doing that? Okay, I'm a bit old school. I still like the phone. 
Um, so I'm, I'm easily reached by my cell phone. That's probably the easiest way to get through to me. That would be on 514-557-3368. Or by email. That's uh, more of today's style, that they call it. I could, be re I could be emailed at MD, that's my initials, Moshe Dinshin, MD at Kisvei Kodesh. So Kisvei Kodesh is K-I-S-V-E-I-K-O-D-E-S-H dot com. Simple as that. I'm sorry, K-O-D-E-S-H or A-S-H? K-O-D-E-S-H. E-S-H dot com. Okay, good. So if somebody wants to call you, it's 514-557-3368. Or they can email you at md at, which is Moshe Dimsich, your name, Kisve, K-I-S-V-E-I, Kodesh, K-O-D-E-S-H dot com. Fantastic. And now, with my two minutes left, um, do you have anything you want to leave? We didn't touch, we barely, we barely scratched the scratches, they say. But is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we have to move on? Yes, there's one small anecdote I would like to, that everyone could take with them. It's a, it shows a very, everyone could interpret it in their way. It shows a very significant part of our history. In Constantinople, and that, that was we call today Istanbul, capital of Turkey, there was a printing press that started in 1540, 50, 50. Uh, I'm, no, I'm wrong, my number, sorry. It's the 1510 area. 1505, 1510, there is a printing press that started there. Now, who were the printers then? Who were the Jews using the books? They were Jews that were expelled from Spain. They lost everything in 1492. One of the biggest communities, exiled communities, went to Turkey. So, and it started flourishing right away with many authors and many books printed right after exile. You see the power after exile, how no one gave up. Now, it took 150 years for the whole Middle East to get its own printing press, non-Jewish printing press. That was the first printing press in the whole Middle East for the next 150 years. So you could interpret it any way you want, but I think it's a great uh, idea that you should elaborate on. Amazing. I, I love it. It is so much to learn about this topic, like all other topics. Moshe, I appreciate you teaching us. Um, hopefully people that have a need or an interest will call you, will email you, and I'm sure when I have questions, I'll call you. Thank you so very much, and have a great Chavez. Thank you, Rebbe Tzvi. You too. Have a great Shabbos, and all the best to you and your audience. Thank you. Be well. Oh, I learned so much in my, along with everybody else, I hope is listening. Lots of stuff. You know, we're, we're so lost with all the, the, the printing presses. You know, I have my own sort of printing press, not a very good one. Um, I, I think it was 12. So my parents took me to an equivalent of a Henry Ford Museum. So I'm sure most people haven't seen the printing press. We didn't even talk about it. It was typeset. You had to take every single letter and put it in the right place. Like, we hit the print button on our printers and on our computers, and everything prints. We're clueless. They went at each little letter, and I was so fascinated by all the letters. And I ask one question, and he starts to answer, and I'm 12. The answer's too long. I ask him the next question. I got the guy so nervous. He, he basically threw me out of the room. I was with my parents, like... Clearly, he did not understand. I was so excited, I couldn't get the questions out fast enough. Instead, he, he dulled um, what I wanted to know, which, by the way, is interesting, not that people care anymore. Uppercase, lowercase. The reason it's called uppercase and lowercase, because there was the uppercase where they took letters from and the lowercase where they took letters from. So that's pretty cool. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be joined with Jonas and Goldson and our word of the week and our letter of the week, and we'll say goodbye. So hold through the break, and we'll be right back. 
Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me. Just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Wald Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Do you want to see things like this? Did you say you died? <laughs> well... I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous drakes. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. And we're back. And I'm still playing with my headphones over here. And as always, we are joined by Jonas and Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Jonas and how are you today? Are we there yet? Are, are we there? Jonas and are you there? I am here. Can you, you hear me? I can now hear you. We have lots of people here. We're all working it out. But yes, I can hear you. So it's been a happening week. Unfortunately, but yes, it has. So let's uh, whatever. I don't know what your take is on this week, but uh, the clock is ticking. Let's go for it. Okay. Well, this week's Torah portion begins with Abraham mourning the death of his wife, Sarah, which is darkly appropriate for a week when we're all mourning after the senseless shooting in Pittsburgh. It's easy to blame anti-Semitism, rightly so. It's easy to blame the toxic political climate that vilifies ideological opponents and incites violence against them, and rightly so. It's easy to blame the breakdown of fundamental values, morals, boundaries, and civility, and rightly so. But where does that get us? We shed a tear, we heave a sigh, we hold our heads in our hands, we light a candle, we decry violence, and then we go back to living our lives, as we must. It's not enough. Sages teach that whenever tragedy comes to the world, we are obligated to ask ourselves how we might be responsible, which is an incredible idea. But the truth is that we all influence the culture in which we live, and that means that when we don't like what we see, we have to do whatever we can to change the world for the better. 
So here's some food for thought. Yes, speak out against hate and violence, but speak softly and civilly. As King Solomon says, a gentle reply turns away wrath. Yes, defend yourself against violence, but never initiate violence. There are times for war, but they're few and far between. Extend the hand of friendship even to people with whom you passionately disagree. If all you have in common is your passion, at least that's a place to start. Acknowledge the problems of the world, but don't allow them to blind you to all that is good. See the world as a reflection of yourself, and make sure that others see the best version of themselves when they look at you. Taking small, positive steps towards righteousness is the best response to evil. May this Shabbos and every Shabbos restore peace and joy to our hearts. Yonason, well said. Thank you as always, and have a great Shabbos. A very good Shabbos. All the best. Okay, be well. Okay, well said. I, you know, I actually had to, I wanted to make sure that he was going to talk about the, the, the tragedy in Pittsburgh, even though I was pretty sure he would, but I didn't want him to think that he should gloss it over, and he did not. Okay, we are ready for our letter of the week. We're up to the letter Kuf. Um, that numerical value of a Kuf is 100. It is actually one of only two letters that's actually made up of two separate pieces. There's the hay which is the fifth letter, which has a very short leg. It doesn't go under the line. And the kuf is really a hay with just a longer leg um, going beneath it. So uh, it wasn't too hard, unfortunately, to find a good word of the week. And that word is kever. A kever is a grave. Kvura is the act of burying. And unfortunately, that's... What uh, what the tragedy led to, people, of course, had to be buried. Sarah is buried. Um, there's a, there was an article I was reading, a lot of articles that we don't have time to get into it, but um, it's interesting. There are people, for monetary reasons, are, are shying away from burial, and they're going to cremation, which, uh, as a Jewish idea, is really tragic because the soul sees how the body is being treated. The body has to be treated with respect. Burial is the respectful way we deal with the body. Cremation is not a respectful way. And one day we'll, I'll bring in some of my other friends that are very involved in making sure people are not cremated. We've had stories before. That's my one letter of the week. So with my little time left, great story. So there's a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Ephraim Shapiro. He's uh, known nationally, maybe internationally. My son knows him in Miami. And um, he tells the following story. He's with his wife in, in Florida, and his wife said, let's take pictures of the kids. I don't know if you've ever done this before. JCPenney's, Target, I've done it with my kids. They take the portraits, and um, if you take just the portrait, it costs you a couple dollars, and there's coupons. You want the whole package. That gets expensive. They make the money on the packages. People like me just go in and get the portraits. I'm sure you've done this before, if you have younger children. And um, anyways, this rabbi and his wife decided to take the children for pictures on December 25th. And not thinking that the place is going to be a mob scene, and it was. And he's there, and the kids are getting crutchy and cranky. So he decides he's online, so he has his number. He's going to take the kids out, and they sit on a park bench or on some chairs. And sitting near them is an older African-American woman in her 70s. So it's the holiday season. So he says to the woman, happy holiday. And the woman turns to him and says, Happy Hanukkah. 
with a real ches, which if I asked most of my helpers here, they couldn't pronounce it. And the rabbi is stunned and say, what? And she says, what, 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 why can't I say happy Hanukkah? You're surprised? And the rabbi is very surprised. And she says, oh yeah, my time is running out. I'm going to go 30 seconds over and you're going to kill me, but I'll be good. Anyways, the bottom line is the woman worked 40 years earlier in the Sovereign Hotel. And in that hotel were many, many rabbis. And she talked to him about a certain rabbi who was pleasant and smiley and friendly to everybody and so nice to everybody. And this Rabbi Shapiro was thinking, could she be referring to the leader in the 70s, the Torah leader by the name of Yaakov Kamenetsky? And he says to her, do you remember what his name was? And she says, of course I remember. That was Rabbi Kamenetsky, and he always had a pleasant word for us and a smile. And uh, that's one of the reasons I can say, happy Hanukkah. So as Rabbi Shapiro explains, he says, do you understand that a smile from a rabbi 40 years earlier made an impression that she remembered his name? And that's really quite amazing. With all the things we're talking about, a smile, a hello, a being friendly has an amazing, powerful impression. And here goes my music, and they gave me a few extra seconds. So thank you, as always, to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, which is added up by one more, Tony, Kelsey, Alyssa, Angel, and Ethan. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Turner Radio Media. Until next, next week, don't forget to think about it.